aren't you just a sight for sore eyes? Of all the movie and TV joints in all the towns and all the world, you walked into mine. How lovely. Come, sit. Let me pour you a drink before we begin the showing. You know, I think that this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Cheers. Here's looking at you, Phil. Well, hello there. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm so happy to be here. So happy you're here. This is the first inaugural episode of Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. My name is Nikki, and I'm so happy you've come to do a semi-deep dive into some old stuff with me, into the crates of old films and media. I've been into like old movies for a long time, since I was a kid practically, and The Twilight Zone is one of my comfort shows as well. So I'm always trying to tell people about old movies, old stuff, but it's hard to ask somebody to go and watch something from 1958 when there's literally something new coming out on every streaming platform ever, every day. So I'm just going to walk you through some of them. If you think the movies sound cool... Cool. Go back and watch them. A lot of these movies I've watched 10, 15 times. I already know the plot. They're good enough to watch multiple times. If you think it's cool just listening to me talk about them so that you know what the plot is and you know what's going on when other people talk about them, happy to be that for you as well, too. But either way, we are just going to do a cool sit down, hang out, dive into these movies. I'm going to walk you through the plot. I'm going to tell you a couple of things about it. We can talk about some themes. And typically during every podcast, I am probably going to have a glass of whiskey with me. That is my drink of choice. You can do water, um, whatever drink you like as well, too. But I just like to have a little something to sip while we chat and watch. So hopefully you'll enjoy this as much as I enjoy watching and talking about these films. So we can get started on our first episode, our first movie, Vertigo. So Alfred Hitchcock is one of my favorite directors of all time. And it actually established a very famous shot in film that we see all the time now, which is called the dolly zoom. That shot, you know that shot where it looks like, so the person is standing in the camera and it looks like they're not moving, but it looks like the background is moving behind them. That dolly zoom shot was created in this film. And so it's kind of considered the vertigo shot, but it's the dolly zoom. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a visual picture of our four main characters. There's a couple other people in the movie, but they only show up once. We really don't need to know their names, unfortunately. Sorry to say that. If you were in this movie and you're listening to this, you did a great job, but we don't really need to know your name. There's only four names we really need to know. So let's start with our boy, Jimmy Stewart playing John Ferguson, who we refer to as Scotty for most of the movie. So you picture like a regular white man from the 50s, like a handsome white man. Like he looks like your average white man who would work at a bank or like would sell shoes, would be a lawyer, maybe even a doctor, just the most average 45-year-old white man that you see. Kim Novak plays uh, Madeline Elster, and also plays Judy Barton, which we'll get into later in the movie. But she is giving blonde bombshell for most of the film, uh, very platinum blonde hair, these thick, dark eyebrows. Her makeup is very like simple, but looks chic and expensive. Um, she dresses in a very expensive looking kind of way. And she just looks like a classy, rich white lady bomb. Barbara Bell Geddes plays Midge, and Midge is, she looks like Velma from Scooby-Doo, for real. Like, I mean, she's a lot, if you took Velma from Scooby-Doo and made her a lingerie designer, she, that's what she looks like. She's so cute, but she's also, she just looks like a very, like, nerdy, cute, pretty lady. And Tom Helmore plays Gavin Elster. He looks like you're a very conventional, very rich, angry white man. Like he looks like he would run the bank or be a partner at the law firm. And his voice is almost on the British side of the transatlantic accent. Like there's the transatlantic accent, first of all, is one of my favorite voices and I can't do it. You you can hear up top. I was trying to kind of do it, but I'm not good at it. But there's two sort of 
deviations of this accent. There's one that sounds a little bit more American, which is what we get from Jimmy Stewart. And there's one that sounds slightly more British almost, which is what we get from Gavin Elster. So those are our four main characters. Whenever I refer to them, I'm going to be calling them Scotty, Madeline, Judy, Midge, or Gavin, most likely. Now, our opening credit sequence opens up with a lot of colors. We zoom in on a lady's face, but that lady isn't Kim Novak. And there's a little bit of um, confusion on the internet about who exactly we're looking at. And we still don't know. I've looked it up on a number of places. Some people think it's this lady, Audrey Lowell. Some people think it's Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, Pat Hitchcock. And some people think it's uh, Vera Miles, who was originally slated to be in the film, but she got pregnant, so she wasn't able to do it. So it could be a number of people, but we're not really sure. She's not given a credit anywhere in the opening credits or in the film. So, uh, and we keep zooming in on her face. There's these like swirls that look sort of like a, a Windows visual um, visualizer, you know, the little swirly pattern one. That's kind of what it looks like. So after our opening credit sequence, uh, it's about two, two and a half minutes long, maybe. We start our film with three people running across a rooftop. So there is a criminal that's running, there's a police officer, and then at the back is Scotty. So they're all running out across a couple of rooftops, and these are slanted rooftops that look like the way when kids draw a rooftop, the way they're like slanted, like triangular, this is how these rooftops look. So they're running across the rooftop. Uh, they start to jump over a roof, and Scotty ends up slipping and falling with his old ass. So he... <laughs> Slips, he grabs onto the side of this building. He looks down. Presumably, this is the first time that he has vertigo because he looks down and he all of a sudden gets really disoriented. The cop comes back and is like, Grab my hand, grab my hand. He doesn't move because he's like shocked from the vertigo. The cop ends up slipping over his shoulder, falls to his death underneath him. So the next scene. We see Scotty and he's talking about how he has a corset on that's getting removed the next day and he's been walking with a cane, but he probably isn't going to have to walk with a cane. And we don't really see him walk with a cane for most of the rest of the film. So presumably after this happens, like this cop falls to his death and then Scotty, I guess, just kind of falls and gets injured or maybe somebody like helps him. They don't really explain it. But either way, this man is also retired from the police force because he can't really successfully work having vertigo, unfortunately. So he's chilling with his homegirl, Midge. They used to date back in the day. They were engaged for like three weeks. She ended up calling off the engagement because he was on that bullshit. But you can tell that she still likes him and she doesn't want him to be on that bullshit anymore. I think they're both at that point where, oh, we're both getting older. You know, like we've tried to date and it's just not working. So Midge is hoping that they can kind of get with each other. But he's on his... And you do kind of get the sense that they would be good together if he would just get his shit together, which is unfortunate. So they're messing around and not messing around in that way, but he's just kind of like joking around about how he'll be able to get over his vertigo. He just needs a stepladder to practice going up the steps a little bit. He goes up a stepladder next to a window and he looks down and it, of course, looks a lot higher than it is because he's on a stepladder next to a window and he practically faints and falls into Midge's arms. Real, ro almost romantic, like he falls and it's so sad because you know, he thought this was a joke, but it is not a joke. He's struggling with this vertigo. So anyway, his boy Gavin calls, they haven't talked in a minute and he's like, yo, can you meet me in my shipyard? Because he's in the shipyard business. So he's like, yo, can you meet me in my shipyard? The area is in Skid Row, which is sort of like saying the hood, but the general name for the hood that's like multiracial and not just black, anyway. So he goes over there and at 11 minutes and 40 seconds, we get the Hitchcock cameo because every movie that Alfred Hitchcock does, he has to have a cameo in it. It's usually really short. You wouldn't even notice if you weren't looking for him. He walks across the screen with a trumpet case. There's nothing about a trumpet anywhere in the movie. I'm trying to figure out how, if there's like some sort of, sort of metaphor I'm supposed to get. But either way, we are happy to see you, Alfie. Thank you so much for stopping by. We appreciate you for making this movie. All right, we can keep going. So <laughs> Gavin and Scotty talk a little bit about how Gavin basically got into the shipyard business because he married into it. His, his father-in-law owns the business, and he just works for them. And 
they also talk a little bit about Scotty's condition because it's been in the papers that he had to quit the police force because he had a weird case of vertigo. And also this police officer died, so clearly it was in the news. Now Gavin finally gets to why he's invited Scotty to come visit. He says, basically, do you believe in possession? Scotty's like, no. He's like, well, what would you do if I told you my wife was possessed? And Scotty said, well, I would tell you to take your wife to see a doctor. And I would also tell you to go see a doctor because for some reason you believe her. That's wild. Why? No. And Gavin gives him a, oh, well, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming. Like he expected Scotty to believe him off rip first chance he gets when he says like, oh, my wife is possessed. So he's like, well, you know, I know it sounds crazy, but like I need somebody that's going to believe me to talk to me. So okay bye and scotty his gullible ass turns around and he's like oh you know i didn't mean to offend you like tell me about your wife being possessed maybe i'll believe you if i listen to you for a little while he didn't really say that but it was it was like oh i'm sorry to offend you tell me about it so gavin says his wife is doing stuff all day and she doesn't realize that she's going out and doing anything she's driving long distances she doesn't realize she's driving long distances She's acting crazy. She goes into these trances and he's just trying to figure out what exactly she's doing, where she's going during during the day and like what's going on. So he says he wants Scotty to follow him. Scotty's like, I got some PI private investigator friends that can do it for you because I'm not working anymore. And Gavin's like, no, I do not want some random people knowing that my wife is nuts on the butt. So I need you to do it. And <laughs> Scotty doesn't really want to do it, but Gavin is his friend. So Gavin says, just meet me at this restaurant and uh, you'll see what she looks like. Now, I don't know why he couldn't give him a picture of her maybe and say like, this is what she looks like, follow her around. But either way, Scotty comes to the restaurant, sees her, sees what she looks like and basically agrees to follow her around. So this first day, he follows her for a while in the car. And an interesting thing about, because there's a lot of sequences where he's following her from his car he's following her car and this movie is shot in san francisco which has a lot of like sharply angled streets as you probably know you've probably seen it in like movies and shows and stuff and what they did for this movie is they shot a lot of these movies specifically from a downward angle when they're doing these shots where they're navigating the streets so you can get this sense of weird almost a weird vertigo from our end as well too because we're constantly looking down at these cars on the street making like turns and trying to follow to see where this car is going other cars are merging in and we're looking down at it so it gives this sort of disorienting sense of what you're looking at just a small detail that's kind of cool i think well, anyway, so he's following her around and he follows her to a back alley and she just sort of parks her car in the alley. He parks his car halfway down the alley behind her, which I don't know how she didn't know she was being followed at this point because nobody else was parked in the alley. And I don't even know how they parked in the alley. But anyway, she goes into this back door. He follows her into the back door and she ends up coming into a flower shop from the back. And he's like watching her walk through the flower shop. And this is the first time that we actually see her in this like gray suit that it comes up in this movie multiple times. And fun fact, interesting fact about the suit, Alfred Hitchcock picked a gray suit for her because he said that gray looks disorienting on platinum blonde women. He said that the blonde hair and the gray of the suit, they clash with each other kind of. So even though she's pretty the suit's pretty something about it just doesn't mesh and that sort of lends to the idea of this film so that was a, another cool stylistic choice that hitchcock made so he follows her into the flower shop he sees her just looking for flowers um after she leaves the flower shop she drives to this mission that's in town and she visits the grave of one Carlotta Valdez. And we're going to see hear that name Carlotta a bunch of times in this movie. She's this lady from, I guess, like the 1800s or something, because um, there is a painting of her that Madeline then goes to look at. And she sits in this art gallery and looks at this painting for like a long time, long ass time. 
the flower, the bouquet of flowers that she has is the same bouquet of flowers that Carlotta has in this painting. And their hair is also kind of the same. So we get this idea that like they, for some reason, like she feels a kindred spirit to this Carlotta lady. Anyway, then he follows Madeline to a hotel called the McKittrick Hotel. So she goes in, she gets up to her room and she opens the window and then she's kind of just sitting there and he goes in flashes his police badge that he still has, and he starts questioning the lady in the front about the lady who lives in the corner room right here, which is obviously her. So she's at first reluctant to give out any information because she's like, what did this lady do wrong? And he's like, look, I'm a cop, just tell me. So she says, well, her name is Carlotta Valdez. And she checked in about two weeks ago. She doesn't sleep here or anything. She just comes in during the day. She sits here for a little bit, just looks out the window and she leaves, but she doesn't cause trouble. And she always pays, so I'm not going to judge her. Like, she seems really chill to me. She's real nice. And he's like, well, um, did she say anything when she came in t today? And she's like, well, she didn't come in today. Her key is right here. And she has to stop to get her key. And he's like, no, she's upstairs. Can you go check and see? Because she's upstairs. The lady from the front goes upstairs and she's like, sir, you can come up here. She's not up here. So he goes up there. Sure enough, she's not up there. And he looks out the window. Her car is gone. So he's like, where? Okay, great. So he goes back to her house. Her car is there. The bouquet of flowers is sitting in the front. But now he's wondering, like, where did she go? How did she leave? That doesn't even make sense. So he talks to Midge and he's like, do you know anybody who knows history, but like small city history, like not like the big battles or anything. I need like some small time history. They end up going to see this guy named Pop Liebel and he gives the rundown on the history of Carlotta. So Carlotta was this rich man's, this rich married man's mistress. He was messing with her. She got pregnant. His wife didn't have any kids and Carlotta didn't have any other kids. And after Carlotta got pregnant, he was kind of done with her, but he wanted the baby because that was his only heir. So he took the boy and then just kind of kicked Carlotta out. And at first she was depressed, of course, because she lost the love of her life and her son. And then she was upset and she went crazy. And she's in the streets yelling, you know, for her son. Nobody's helping her. She ends up unaliving herself, unfortunately. So now we know a little bit about Carlotta herself. So Scotty goes to talk to Gavin and he's like, all right, well, this is what I saw the first day and kind of just runs him through everything, runs him through all he knows and runs him about the info about Carlotta. And Gavin's like, oh yeah, Carlotta is Madeline's great grandmother. So Scotty's like, oh, well, that's why she's going to all these places and doing all this stuff. She's just doing stuff that her great grandmother did. Like, that's not possession. And Gavin's like, well, she doesn't know that Carlotta's her great-grandmother. She doesn't know any of this stuff. And Scotty's like, okay, well, then how do you know then? And Gavin's like, oh, well, her mom told me. But her mom didn't want to tell her because her great-grandmother also went crazy and unalived herself. So she didn't want to, like, pass down that information. But apparently she's possessed. So possibly she's just finding it out from this possession she has going on. And Scotty's like, this is wild. I don't. I don't get it. So next day, she goes to this art gallery to look at this painting again. This is the second time Scotty has followed her to this art gallery, okay? So afterwards, she goes to Fort Point. It's by the water. I think it's underneath the Golden Gate Bridge, if you are familiar with San Francisco. But she goes, and she's throwing the flowers from the bouquet into the water. Once the bouquet is finished, she kind of just throws like the remainder of the bouquet in there. And then she just jumps in, just flounces into the water and just kind of like lays there, obviously in an attempt to unalive herself. So Scotty, of course, our boy jumps in after her to try to save her. He's trying to wake her up. She's trancing out. So he puts her in the car and takes her back to his house. And she's all wet because of the, the bay. So he took her clothes off of her and hung them up to dry and kind of let her just lay in his bed and come to. And she's, it seems like she's trancing out. She's talking in her sleep, but you know, still kind of sleep. And uh, she finally wakes up because she's startled because the phone rings and he invites her out for coffee or tea. And 
gives her some pajamas to put on. She comes out, of course, she's, even though she has jumped in the bay, her makeup is still sitting, hair is still sitting. She's still gorgeous, of course. Um, so she comes out like, okay, who are you? What? And so he starts to kind of talk to her about what happened. She fell into the bay. Um, she doesn't remember anything. She knows she was there, but she says, I must've just like passed out or gotten dizzy or something because I don't remember. And, uh, she asks him, you know, where he was before he was at the bay. And she says she was shopping in the city. And he says, well, I was at the art gallery. And she's like, oh, I've driven by that art gallery a bunch of times, but I've never gone in. This art gallery that she's gone to every day to look at this painting, she says she's never been in there. So wild. She's giving him flirt energy. She's giving him, you know, uh, the eye, and she says, oh, you know I'm married, but not like, oh, you know I'm married, like, oh, you can't flirt with me like that, but like, you know I'm married in this like, so if we do anything, it has to be kind of low-key kind of way. She's flirting hard, but um, the phone rings. He goes to answer it in the other room. It's Gavin. He tells her like, yeah, your girl fell into the bay. I don't know what's going on with her, and Gavin's like, yo, okay, listen, Carlotta killed herself when she was 26. Madeline is 26. We have to figure this out soon because this is wild. He goes back out to the living room. Madeline has left. Uh, she's driving off. And as she's driving off, we get a glimpse of Midge. She's in her car kind of watching uh, Scotty's house and sees Madeline leave. And you can tell that she's a little bit jealous because she's trying to figure out who this woman is, why she's leaving Scotty's house. And she's been trying to get her some Scotty time too. And he does not have the time for her because he's so busy following this Madeline girl around as well. You can tell she is like really feeling him, but he really does play too much. Anyway, Scotty goes to follow Madeline around the next day and ends up following her back to his house. She's written him a thank you letter to say, thank you for saving me from dying. And she goes to put it in his mailbox and he walks up on her and he's like, oh, hey, like, what you doing? And she's like, oh, I just came to thank you. You know, they have a little cute exchange and basically decide they're going to go wandering around together. Just go hang out. And they end up going to this like wooded area, tall trees, very shaded, like almost no sun coming through. And they're walking through and they get to this exhibit about tree rings and about how they, you can interpret the age of a tree by how many rings it has. Um, so we get this other like weird circular spiral motif now coming back to us again through the tree. So she points towards the outer rings and she's like, well, this is when I was born and this is when I died. Okay, so now she's clearly trancing out. She randomly walks off. He's going to follow her, but she's kind of dipped off behind a tree and she's leaning on a tree. He all of a sudden runs up on her and starts questioning her like, what are you seeing? Where are you at right now in your head? Like, who are you? What's going on? And she's like, please stop asking me all these questions. Like, just stop. I don't, I don't want to talk right now. Like, I just want to leave. Can we just leave and go somewhere that's more well lit? Because this is a mess. I can't, I can't do this. This is too dark. Please, let's leave. So they finally leave. They go over by the ocean. She all of a sudden starts opening up about how she feels like she's walking through a dark corridor and then everything goes dark and she never sees the end of it and she doesn't know where she is. And he's trying to figure out, you know, what places she's seeing in her head, what things she's seeing in her head. And she's like, look, just leave me alone. I'm crazy. And she starts running towards the ocean again, I guess to unalive herself because she is so obsessed with just dying at this point. It's like, all right, girl. But of course, Scotty runs after her. He grabs her. And he's like holding her and their faces are close. So they kiss and they're right by the ocean and the water is crashing up against the rocks. Real romantic like. Um, so this is their first kiss. You can tell that they kind of care about each other. But we know Madeline is married. So this is kind of a mess at this point. So now Scotty goes to go visit Mitch. And Mitch has been like, writing Scotty letters like, hey, can you come by? Like, can we kick it? Can we hang out? Because she misses her boo. But now Scotty done fell in love with Madeline. He done had his first kiss with Madeline. So he acted mad standoffish with Midge. Like he's like, she's like, can we like get dinner and like hang out and talk? He's like, yeah, I mean, I guess. And she's like, well, what you been doing lately? And he's like, I don't know, just wandering around doing my thing, you know, just real vague about it. And she was like, well, I've been working on painting and I made this painting and I was thinking about maybe giving it to you. Shows him the painting. It's her, like think about her Velma type face with her glasses, 
but she's wearing this like huge Victorian like royal dress this like almost purple dress with all these bows and stuff on it so she's thinking like oh I painted this picture because obviously he's into paintings he's into old stuff now like he thinks this is classy she thought she did something he thinks that she's making fun of him. So he's like, nah, man, this ain't even cute, dog. Like, I'ma just go. Like, I don't wanna go to dinner. So she's hurt because she's like, damn, like I thought I was doing something. I thought, you know, we had a little vibe. Nah, this man is like hurt over battling. So it's unfortunate. So he walks home all sad in the dark. He falls asleep on his couch. And the next morning he wakes up to his a knock on his door. It's Madeline, and she's coming in talking about she had this bad dream, and she can picture where she was. There was a tower, and she's describing where she was, and Scotty basically is like, oh, I know where you were. You were at the mission at San Juan Batista. I know that place. Now, remember, Gavin earlier had said that she would go driving like 100 miles and didn't even realize where she was going. Well, this place is 94 miles south of San Francisco, so this may be where she's been going. So they, he's like, come back later on today. I'll take you there. And maybe we can figure this out. So she comes back. They go. She's wearing this gray suit again. The off-putting gray suit, as we call it. She's trancing out. But she ends up admitting that she loves him. He admits that he loves her. They have a really passionate kiss. But now she's like, well, I, this is... It's too late. I can't do this. She starts running towards the church, tells him that it wasn't supposed to be this way. He has to let her go. She's trying. He's trying to grab her and keep her from going. She says, just let me go in the church alone. So he starts to let her go, but she looks up at the bell tower. So clearly he's like, this girl finna run up to this bell tower. I gotta stop her. So he's running after her. She runs up these stairs and it's a spiral staircase. My boy's vertigo kicks in. So now he's running after her. He's stumbling. He can't keep up with her. And she's running up. And he keeps getting dizzy, looking down. Eventually, he's about like two-thirds of the way up. And he watches her fall to her death at the window that's right next to him. She falls. She dies. Damn. So, but instead of like going out and checking on her, maybe checking her vitals to see if she's okay, to see if he can take her to the hospital or whatever, they start ringing the bells at the mission. This man just goes back down the stairs and just walks out the back door and goes home. Doesn't even go check on her at all. So he's like, he said that he blacked out. I guess this was tra too traumatic. So he said he just blacked out and he doesn't remember anything until he got home. But so... Uh, they end up having a trial and the judge basically dogs him out and is like, I don't know how you got hired for this job. You already let a police officer die and I'm glad you saved her that one time from not dying in the water, but you obviously couldn't save her again. This whole vertigo thing is not your bag. So I don't know how you keep getting hired for things and you keep getting past uh, the law for these things, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about why she died. And they basically decided that she died by reason of insanity. So Gavin says he's upset, but he's not upset at Scotty. And he's about to just go to Europe and get his mind right because this is a lot for him to deal with. He just lost his wife and this is, uh, this is tough for Gavin. So he's just about to dip. Unfortunately, this is really tough for Scotty too. He's having weird dreams where he's falling off roofs. He's having dreams about Madeline. There's weird circles and stuff coming at him. He's having vertigo dreams. It's wild for him. So eventually he kind of goes crazy. He goes catatonic. He doesn't talk and he doesn't really like look at people. He ends up in like a sort of like an asylum, like a short stay asylum. I think it's called a sanatorium. Midge comes to visit him. She's trying to get through to him the same way that he had been trying to get through to Madeline when she was going through her trances. She, Midge is trying to get through to him and she's hoping like she can, he'll just try and see her again. But he's in his trance. She's hurt. She leaves this place. Midge leaves crying because it's obvious like she, she knows that he's not all there and she's sad for him, but she's also sad because this is all happening because He's in love with another woman and there's nothing that she can do about it. And it hurts her a lot. And I 
I feel really bad for Midge. And we're going to talk about what Midge's role was in this movie, but I think she is so important to the plot. I used to not think she was. I was like, why did they even put this lady in this movie? But she's so important to the plot of this film and what we're supposed to see. So he eventually comes back and they let him out of the sanatorium, but he starts going to all the places that he remembers Madeline going. So first he goes to her old house, sees her car outside, and sees this lady that looks like Madeline going to the car. Well, he runs up and it's actually this older lady who says that Gavin Elster had sold her this car when he left. So he goes to the museum or the art gallery. There's a girl sitting there looking at that painting. She's not even blonde. She's brunette, but he's so like so obsessed with this painting he runs up on her too he goes to the restaurant where he saw her for the first time he sees a woman that he thinks is her this blonde lady it's not her so he's seeing madeline everywhere he ends up going to the flower shop he's standing outside he turns around and he sees this woman who has the same exact face as madeline but she has brown hair and baby hairs she dresses kind of different and you can tell she's a little bit more of a city girl she's not like a rich lady a rich married woman so she goes back to her hotel where she's been staying for a while and he follows her there like he's across the street but just watching her from across the street follows her to the hotel, sees her go in and open the window, which apparently she has a habit of doing when she gets in the hotel, hotels, she just opens the window. So everybody knows what room she's in. Anyway, he follows her in, goes to her room and knocks on her door and is like, hey, can I talk to you? Because you remind me of somebody that I know. And she's giving sassy. She's like, is this a Gallup poll? Like, why are you here? Like, Oh, you think you finna get some strange from some random woman you seen on the street? Oh, you got your heart broken by some girl because she left you for another man and now you think I'm finna be your quick fix? No, ma'am, turkey spam. I mean, damn. And <clears throat> so the more she talks to him, she kind of realizes he really is heartbroken over this girl. Before he leaves, he asks her if they can go on a date and she agrees. And he's excited. Like, he's hyped to go. He's like, yes, like, I'm gonna come back in a half hour. She's like, you gotta give me more time to get ready. He's like, all right, I'm gonna come back in an hour. Cool. He leaves. She is when she leaves, she looks horrified. Okay. Now we have 30 minutes left in the movie. It's been an hour and 40 minutes at this point. So now we get a flashback to the day at the church. We see Madeline running in uh, up the stairs and Scotty struggling to keep up behind her. But we get a shot of the top where the bell tower is and Madeline reaches the top and it's actually Gavin Elster is up there and he's holding the actual Madeline who was already dead. And this woman, who was supposed to be Madeline, is actually Judy Barton, Gavin's mistress. So he tosses his dead wife off the tower, and she has the same gray suit that Judy has on. And then he hurries up and grabs Judy and pulls her back and pulls her to the side. So let's talk about it now. So my guy left. He said he was traumatized and didn't really know what was happening. So he left the scene of the crime, went home. If he had just gone down to just check on the body and that wouldn't have been foreign to him as a police officer, he's probably seen a lot of like dead bodies and things have happened, like gross things before. He's a police officer. So going down and looking at this body wouldn't have been weird for him. If he had just gone down and checked it out, he probably would have seen that she had a different face and been like, hold on, wait a second. I have questions because this is not the girl I've been hanging out with for this past however long. Um, and this all could have been prevented. But anyway, now Judy is distraught and starts packing her stuff to leave because she's like, oh my gosh, this man found me. She's clearly still in love with him. Like she's smitten with him but she's like oh like this is so weird like I don't even know how to explain this and obviously he's still obsessed with this woman I don't even know how to like start this situation so she starts to write him a letter to explain everything but then she's like you know what I'm gonna stay I'm gonna go on this date with him and I'm gonna see if we can make things work because obviously me and Madeline are the same person to him it's just you know weird but maybe we can make this work so they go on a date but he's still seeing like blonde women, people that remind him of Madeline and Judy can see it. And she's kind of hurt because she realizes like he's chasing a ghost that doesn't even exist. And she's like, I don't even know if I can like step up to be the person like for him because he's chasing a woman that doesn't exist. I have her face and he's still not satisfied with me, which is wild. 
So they get back to the house. He's like, you know, can I see you tomorrow? She's like, you know, for dinner. And he's like, nah, like in the morning. Like, I just want to hang out with you all day. And she's like, I have a job. He's like, quit your job. <laughs> and she's like, yo, like, I was at dinner with you. I saw you looking around. Like, are you with me because I look like this woman, this dead woman? And he's like, yeah. But I mean, like, it's no different. Like, I still, I like you. And yes, it is because you look like this woman. But like, can't you just like go with it, please? So she's like, all right, I'm going to call off work tomorrow and we can hang out. And I think she's thinking, like, maybe if we hang out and he gets to know me, he'll fall in love with me. I have her face, but I have my own personality. I'm Cutie Barton, you know? So the next day they go to hang out, and it looks kind of awkward. They're, like, walking next to each other, but it doesn't seem like they're really talking all that much. Um, they're hanging out, but it still sort of feels a little awkward. Eventually, he's like, yeah, I want to take you to buy some clothes. And she's mad excited. <clears throat> but he doesn't want to just buy any clothes. He's looking for that gray suit. And shes they look at every gray suit they have in stock. And he's like, that's not the right gray suit. And Judy is getting upset because she knows what gray suit he's looking for. She still has that gray suit in her closet. But she's like, please stop trying to make me into this woman. And he's like, please just do this for me. Can you just please? I just need you to do this for me. <laughs> so Judy breaks down and she's like, why can't you just like me? You don't even seem like you really want to kiss me. Like, you want to hang out with me, but you don't really like me, me. And he looks at her and says, like, I need you to dye your hair blonde. And Judy is clearly heartbroken by this because now it's like, all right, he wants me to make the full transformation. Uh, but she says to him, if I let you change me, will you love me? And he says, yes. And she says, okay, I don't care about me anymore. And she kisses him. And that's probably one of the most devastating parts of the movie. And we'll talk about it later. But I didn't really read this part of the movie when I watched it as a younger woman. But now watching it as an older person and watching her decide to give up being her full self in order to please this man. Oh, so heartbreaking. So he pays for her to go and have a full beauty makeover, dye her hair get her makeup redone, get her nails done, like the whole nine. She gets home and she has on the gray suit. She has the same makeup that Madeline had on and she's this super platinum blonde. But her hairstyle is still the same one that Judy had with like half of it's pinned up in the top, but the, top, the bottom is down. She has all these baby hairs. So he's like, nah, I need you to pin that up. And she's like, we agreed at the salon that that hairstyle ain't look cute on me. So I just decided to keep the hairstyle I had. He was like, nah, 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 I need you to pin it up. Like, do the thing, dude. So she goes in the bathroom and you can tell she's kind of sad to have to do it. Because this is the basically the final piece of the transformation. She goes in the bathroom. He's waiting out there. And she comes out and there's this green light that's shining through the window. That sort of makes her look like a ghost. She comes out of the bathroom and literally looks like the ghost of Madeline. And he immediately runs to her and kisses her. He is smitten. Like he is into it now. You can tell this is his, this is it. This is what he wanted the whole time. This is what he's been waiting on. And he's sort of like now, he seems like his old self again, like the old Scotty. He's sitting down waiting for Madeline, waiting for Judy, excuse me, waiting for Judy to get ready for a dinner. He's got a little smile on his face. It looks like his cheeks are a little rosier and looks a little happier. And she looks excited too because now she's got her man and she's like excited because they get to like live their lives together. And even though she is her and she's had to do all this stuff to change herself, she could still have her personality. She just had to change everything about the way she looked. Uh, so he helps her put on her jewelry for dinner and as he's helping her put on her necklace he realizes that the necklace is the same necklace from the painting of Carlotta so now he realizes something's wrong and he's been duped and the jig is up so he doesn't want her to realize that he knows so he tells her yeah we're gonna go to dinner but we're gonna go a little further out they get in the car and drive and they drive for a long time and she's wondering exactly where they're going and after a while, she realizes they're going back to Juan San Batista. And she's trying to get him to chill out, trying to get him to talk about what he needs to do. And he just keeps saying, I need to relive the past one more time. And 
he takes her and walks her through what happened that day when they're standing on the lawn and they're hugging, walks her into the church and then sort of like nudges her up the stairs to walk up the stairs. His vertigo is kicking in, but his anger is way more powerful than his vertigo at this point. And he is pushing up the stairs. So he gets about two thirds of the way up and he's unhinged. And where he gets to the point where he had stopped last time and he says, like, this is where I stopped. I only made it so far, but you kept going. Remember, Madeline? And he and she realizes then that he knows that she's Madeline. And he says, it's the necklace. That was the slip that gave you away. So now he's revealed to her, like, I know what's up. So she's trying to fight against him. She obviously doesn't want to go up the stairs, but he's nudging her up there. So she finally admits to him that Gavin had already broken his wife's neck at the top and was just waiting up there. And Scotty is going off on her. And she's like, you know, you are asking me not to make you over, but you let Gavin make you over. But even it was even worse because he made over your personality. He made over your mannerisms. He told you exactly how to act. And you were giving performance on those trances, sis. So don't even give me a little bit of hassle about dyeing your hair and getting your nails done when you were literally willing to pretend to be a crazy person to do this plot against me. So she also... He also, uh, Judy also then admits that basically they picked him because they had found out about his vertigo in the newspapers and knew that he wouldn't be able to make it up those stairs. So he has Judy like gripped up and he is like mad as hell. Like he's scary. So she basically admits that she had been Gavin's mistress. And as soon as his wife was gone and he got all that money, he was good to dip. So he just gave her a little bit of money to, you know, thank her for her services and gave her the necklace as a parting gift. So basically like threw her out just like Carlotta. I mean, obviously she wasn't pregnant, but like treated her just the same. And she's, but she's telling him, uh, Judy's telling Scotty, but like, I fell in love with you when all of this was happening and I felt so bad and I do want to be with you. I do love you. Please just give me a chance. Like we can be together. Like I'm the woman that you want. And as she's, it seems like she's getting through to him, all of a sudden, um, a shadow appears from the side, from the stairs. And it is actually a nun, but for some reason it startles Judy. She steps backwards, falls from out of the same opening that Madeline and she had fallen from before and falls to her death. And now Scotty is looking down on yet another body that he could not save. And that's how the movie ends. So um, we talked about the opening credits up front, but one of the interesting things about older movies that I actually enjoy is at the the reason that we call movie trailers trailers is because usually they would show previews for other movies after a movie ended. So they didn't have like closing credits where they show you every single person that was involved with the movie. You see like the main people that are involved in the movie the same way we see in the opening credits. At the end of a movie, you see what like production studio produced the film and the film ends. And normally if you were watching a film back in, you know, the fifties or sixties or whenever you'd be out at a picture show or out at a drive-in or out somewhere watching the movie and the movie trailers were there to tell you, what other movies were playing during the day? What other movies were playing during the weekend if they were doing a double feature? Basically, the trailers were there for you to set up your movie watching experience for whoever you were going to be watching movies with. It wasn't to tell you about movies that were coming out in six months. I mean, they did have trailers like that as well, too. But most of the trailers were there to let you know what movies were on and that you could watch. And so right after a movie ended, you get to see the trailers. And that's kind of the reason that they didn't have those ending trailers that we have right now. So uh, one thing that I do want to throw in is in the DVD version, there is an unreleased bonus scene that they didn't put out in the regular release where Midge is sitting in a room and she's listening to a radio broadcast about uh, the police 
basically chasing Gavin Elster across Europe, trying to locate him. And Scotty walks into the room and she turns off the radio and they kind of just sit in silence and look out the window. So we get an idea that Midge is still there for Scotty and they're still in each other's lives. And we've also gotten a little bit of a sense of justice for Gavin because this was his crime. And um, Alfred Alfred Hitchcock generally does like to do that. And especially on his show, he always likes there to be some sense of justice, a sense of whoever did a crime, as fun as it might've been to watch in the show, they were punished for that crime. And we're supposed to get a sense of that too from the bonus scene. But obviously if you watch the regular movie, we don't figure that out. Mitch's character is so important to me now that I've watched it for the 15th time because she establishes a baseline of what regular affection looks like. We can see that she really cares for Scotty, but is not willing to overstep their friendship in a way that makes him feel uncomfortable. The most uncomfortable thing that she was willing to do was paint that painting for him, but it was because she sort of misjudged what he was into and didn't really understand that he was kind of diving into a bit of obsession. And it wasn't so much an attraction for art or an attraction for classy women as it was this idea of chasing after this mystery. And he sort of fell in love with the mystery of Madeline, especially having lost his job as a police officer. This was sort of like allowing him to continue his job, but in a very mysterious, magical sort of way. Uh, So we were able to see Midge see that happen and want to be a part of that, but not so much so as she was willing to like follow him or figure out what he was doing on his downtime. She let him live. She let him be knowing that she did care about him and hoping that he would eventually come back to her. And we saw in the bonus scene, they do kind of come back to each other in a sense, but she's not willing to go to the degree that he's willing to go to or that Gavin was willing to go to to get what he wanted. And so Midge is sort of like our baseline for probably the best character in the film. Um, There's no lies. There's no deceit. There's no uh, sneaking around. Midge is straightforward. Midge is cut and dry. And she's honest. She's the real deal. That brings us to Judy. So... We get Judy in two forms in this film. Obviously, we get her as Madeline Elster, and we also get her as Judy Barton. But we don't really get an idea of if either of those people has any hint of Judy really in her. We know that Judy is good at pretending to be people. And in fact, if you watch the movie, when she comes out of the bathroom after her huge transformation and she comes back with the blonde hair and they're about to go to dinner as, quote unquote, Madeline, but as Judy, she has some of Madeline's mannerisms. Her mannerisms get a little softer. She seems to be a little kinder, less city, less rough around the edges. But she was sort of reading a little rough when we first meet her as Judy. So now we're wondering, like, was she putting on a show so that she would seem less like the character of Madeline? Is that really her? Is Madeline closer to her than we think? we really don't get a good idea of who she is. And we really don't know who Scotty is supposed to be in love with. Scotty's fallen in love with this married woman that doesn't even really exist. She's manufactured by Gavin. And so when he tries to make this woman over to be something that was already manufactured, it doesn't quite work. This gray suit, it doesn't quite work. It's off-putting, it's beautiful. It looks immaculately put together, but something's just a little bit off. This gray suit motif is so important to this idea of us really not having a good idea of who Judy is. We kind of get vertigo thinking about who she is and who Scotty is trying to create because Scotty is trying to recreate a woman that was created by Gavin that we don't even know if Madeline, if the real Madeline Elster was the baseline for this character he created, or if he created a character that he thought that Scotty would fall in love with. We have no idea. It's a all circular reasoning of him trying to create someone that didn't really exist 
and this person trying to avoid re-becoming someone that they already became. Now, actually, one of my favorite fun facts about this movie is that when it first came out, it wasn't really as popular. Um, it came out to like moderate reviews. It basically made its money back with a little bit on top, but not really. And some people thought it was good, but some people didn't really like it. And the more time passed and the more people started to watch it and the more I think they realized how well the plot holds up and how iconic that vertigo dolly zoom effect is. And that literally derives from this film. Now it's considered one of the best movies of all time. It's been number one on a number of best movies of all times lists, best movies from the 50s um, lists. Uh, on AFI's top 100 list, it's been on there multiple times. I think it was number one at some point. Uh, the Screen Guild uh, movie nods, it's been put in there. Um, I think the American film Time Capsule, it's been put in there as an iconic film. Uh, so it's interesting that this movie, when it came out, people weren't really like feeling it like that. And now people regard it as one of the best films of all time. The characters are iconic, the plots holds up, the outfits are iconic, and honestly, there are very few movies that can reveal a plot twist to you 30 minutes before the movie ends and still be engaging literally until the last second, and this movie is able to do that. I love it. If you would like to watch it, I know that it's available for renting on multiple renting platforms. You can look those up. But if you do have access to Showtime, I believe it is available on Showtime On Demand. That's where I watched it. So that was our first uh, movie, Vertigo. Next week, we're actually going to be diving into another Alfred Hitchcock classic. Uh, one of my favorites, perfect for October. You probably know it as well, but we're not going to give it away quite yet. But in preparation for next week, I will say that we all go a little mad sometimes. So just remember that. I really appreciate you guys watching the podcast uh, or listening to the podcast, excuse me. Um, I'm going to put uh, information in the show notes about uh, email address, social media stuff, uh, so that you guys can contact me or follow if you guys um, are interested. Thanks for listening. And in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And before you say something, I know that The Truman Show is not an old movie, but it's one of the best goodbye quotes of all time. And so unless you guys can come up with a better one for me to use, it's probably what I'm going to use for my podcast. Sorry, guys, but I love it. Thank you so much. Bye.